Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson. And I am Buck Santa Claus Green. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. It's, uh, it is that time of year, and this is the Friday Reload, the last one before, I think, before Christmas now. And um, is it? Coming up. It is, right? I, I was astonished when I realized it was Christmas. Oh my God! Actually, I'm a little bit better prepared this year. Anyway, this year, this uh, this week, everybody, this is the Friday Reload for the week of December fifteenth, two thousand and fourteen, um, and this is our our way of getting going back over the different things we've discussed on the blog or in social media and the comments that we've gotten from people out there, our readers, and for Buck and I to get together and chat about our own personal viewpoints on what's come up and everything, and, and kind of give you an update on kind of the, the the teaching points from this week all in one compact little place. So uh, we actually had quite a bit of stuff going on in the blog this week and a lot more, to, lot more to talk about as well. But first, I want to thank everybody who has subscribed and left comments for our iTunes podcast. It's, of course, gaining in popularity. We're getting a lot of great stuff back. Um, I want to say thanks to T in Arizona, who on iTunes said, Great podcast, five stars. I've listened to a lot of podcasts on the subject of survival and prepping and maybe picked up a thing or two. This one is not only informative, but also entertaining. Great subjects, great interviews. The capitalism and love for North Koreans leader can be forgiven because this is America and we have freedom for now. You know, we were, we were on the cutting edge of North <laughs> Korean commentary. What with North Korea is so in the news because of the Sony hack and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really feel like we deserve credit for or lampooning North Korea before it was hot. Yeah, I think so too. I should contact Seth Rogen about that. I, I hear he's open to that sort of he thing. He can't take all the credit. What I, what I love, the best part about the Sony hack was that they paid Seth Rogen three times more than James Franco because nobody likes James Franco. <laughs> no, he wrote and produced that. I, just, I was listening to this interview on, um, on Howard Stern. And... Um, James, yeah, James Franco is an interesting, uh, an interesting character. But, uh, but, uh, yeah, Seth Rogen actually wrote and produced this thing. And it's funny how, you know, somebody can just get stoned and think up, uh, what if we assassinated the, the, the leader of North Korea? Like, it's interesting how this whole thing has played out with, you know, it's like, it, it, it brings up a real question. Like, are they right to, to like stop this movie? You know, do we give in to terrorists in a cyber attack? You know, I read a great commentary about that. From the perspective of Sony, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. If they knuckle under and they cancel the movie, then they're giving in to possibly the lamest terrorist regime ever because it's North Korea and nobody takes them seriously. And, you know, the the, uh, Department of Homeland Security said there was no credible threat. It was all basically just a bunch of guys doing this on the computer, and then looking up at Kim Jong-un, who's in the room staring at them, going, eh, eh, how'd we do? How'd we do? Please don't kill my family. And, uh, you know, remember, Kim Jong-un, he murdered his own uncle because, I don't know, Christmas was awkward or something. And (laughs) it's just, the if, if they cancel, okay, they're giving in. But let's say they don't cancel. They go ahead with it, and, uh, something happens. Now, chances of something happen are, are, are slim, but, Hollywood executives are cowards by their very nature. That's why they churn out the same movie over and over again. Instead of doing a new movie, you get, you know, Transformers 12. It, it's just the nature of Hollywood executives to be cowardly. So we cannot expect them to have the courage to, to confront 
conflict like this. Uh, I also read a great article that said the movie's not very good. So by becoming this political cause, when they finally do release it, we'll all go out and see it as a way of saying, fuck you, North Korea. And the movie will do much better than it would have otherwise because it's terrible. I haven't heard this. I haven't heard any reviews on the actual movie itself, but I mean, I, th- I thought the same thing you did. Like, this is the best thing that could have happened for them, you know, for, from the standpoint of marketing. And this, this yeah. had to be a total lawyer's move. I mean, obviously it's a total lawyer's yeah, move. It's the, now it's go see the interview for America. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. But, you know, but it does bring up the bigger question, like, should, is it right? I mean, pretty much when it's not your, movie theater and your chain, of course, it's easy to say, you know, hell no, you know, this is America, I'm not giving in to terrorists. Um, whether they could do anything or not, you know, who who really knows? Um, but the scary thing to me is that if they could, well, what's stopping them from doing it tomorrow just for the hell of it? Yeah, because I don't think North Korea is going to go, oh, they canceled the movie? Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like they're going to, we're not going to get on their good side. Well, I mean, I guess you could keep pulling that card out anytime. You know, we don't like your the the commercial that you did for Frosted Flakes. You turn it, take it off, or else now, oh damn it, they took it off. Now we, oh, shit, what do we have to do to blow these people up? Or, it, or, I'm so desperate to attack America today, and they keep listening. Well, and and you know, it's so if they have that kind of you know capability of hacking into stuff, then. You know, obviously, they could, could they hack into the water water treatment plants, nuclear facilities, you know, electrical grids. You know, what do they have the the well, ability to do? It's a fact that the United States lags behind major powers in terms of its capacity for cyber warfare. We do not take it seriously. We haven't taken it seriously. We do not have people devoted to it, and that's why enemy nations nations that do not like us, despite whatever lip service they pay to the contrary, are constantly mounting cyber attacks on the United States, call it the virtual infrastructure. All the time, yeah. And and we do not respond when they do it. We're like, stop doing that, or I'll tell you to stop doing that again. You know, we, we really don't have in place any sort of a comprehensive program either to combat this virtual warfare or some kind of reprisal when somebody does it. So well, I guess you have area. Don't you have to respond to cyber with cyber? I mean, it's not like anybody's going to really understand blowing up, you know, military facilities or electronic facilities or anything like that in retaliation for. Well, okay, you hacked into our our nuclear facility, and fortunately we caught it in time. But that's an you know, is that an act of war if you hack into? our power grid or our nuclear facility or water treatment plants? Well, it, it all comes down to how how big are your balls, basically. When uh, the Libyans blew up an American airliner, Ronald Reagan said, oh, really? And just started dropping bombs on them. He did his best to blow up Muammar Gaddafi. He blew up his house. And Gaddafi was quiet for a good number of years until when he finally popped up again, looking like an extra from Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, his people were like, oh, yeah, you're still the dictator. Let's murder you. So, you know, it's, it's funny how that works. He, he dropped off the news after we tried to blow him up. And, and a lot of people criticized Reagan for, for doing that, for, for taking that move. And, and he was, you know, he was a cowboy. He was going to get us all blown up. He was Ronnie Reagan. And boy, we're all doomed. So 
I think a president who was like, oh, you're going to attack our computers? I'm going to blow up your embassy. Oh, hang on. Blam. Oh, that's what we do with the drones now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it all comes down to do we want to take the interaction outside the realm of, you know, computers? Because I think a lot of nations that engage in cyber terrorism are like, well, you know, their password was one, two, three, four, five. So, you know, how, how <laughs> what do you expect? Because we just don't take our our computer security uh, seriously. I'm so, sure. I'm sure I, we do. I mean, I'm sure we have, you know, tw- twelve year old hackers in some you know basement of the Pentagon who have been identified as prodigies or whatever. Like, I I think isn't that what we w- would do? Like when people get hacked. I mean, do you eliminate the hacker or do you say, hey, this kid just hacked into the Pentagon? Do we imprison him or do we pay him a shitload of money? You know, obviously, well, if he can do it, don't we want this kid on our side rather than some I, Neo Anderson for, you know? Yeah, but I, I think we would like to believe that. I think we would like to think that's what our country does. But if we were really doing that, would we be seeing the kinds of nonsense from Anonymous and their various cyber attacks and acts of terrorism and, you know, putting up uh, police officers' uh, information online and, and stuff like that. I, I think largely we are helpless in the face of a serious hacking attack because we just haven't instituted, you know, there's no president who's taken the initiative to go, you know what, this is a thing. Um, in, in the past, historically, it has fallen to our presidents to go, I really think we should start a program for this. You know, it's kind of like when Kennedy started SEALs or, or things like that. Stuff we take for granted now. It's always fallen to our leaders to go, I really feel that this is a thing that we should be dealing with. So I'm waiting for some American leader to go, you know, it's time we created a cyber terrorist or counter-terrorist force to deal with these threats and then start really coming at them. Well, I think and, they're and on the... Think- I think they're on the cusp of, of some... I mean, they have to be on the cusp of something like that because they're putting enough, you know, spying technology in for domestic, you know, terrorism... Oh, Meaning, well, yeah, you know, citizens, <laughs> you know, yeah, there's frankly the, the enemy always seems to be us and not North Korea. Right. That's that's what's odd. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just it, it's it's pretty boy. It really opens up the battlefield quite a bit because and you're right. There are those like purist hackers out there who are releasing information like kind of, you know, against the government and and, um, you know, I guess with with you know not I guess but with good with good reason. I mean, isn't that that's kind of like a a great revolutionary tool, isn't it? I mean, it's like you can grab your AR-15 and go out in front of the White House and protest the, the government's infringement on rights, or you know you can be in your your parents' basement, you know, with no lights on, that green glow of the computer, and be you know just keep working on hacking skills to expose different secrets for the government, things like that. I mean. That seems like it's the, you know, it's the revolution. It's it's a patriotic position, I think, if you use your powers for good. Yeah. Versus evil. Evil. <laughs> One million, One million dollars. dollars. That's, that's the thing. You know, North Korea really comes across as like, you know, Dr. Evil. It's just, it's so hard to take them seriously. Well, and I, I love look, those, at, look at their camouflage. We, you know, remember, I'm actually not aware of camouflage. Well, we did a we did a blog post one time with um, it was actually it was the only picture I could find of like you know soldiers in in camouflage other than you know our own troops. But it's like this key lime green 
camouflage suit like and they're in the middle of like brown grass and everything i'm like where in korea is it bright lime green that you would be blending in anywhere but it's got it's just it's the most ridiculous looking camouflage i've ever seen well they're not known for being well financed which of course is the other thing that makes this all uh very annoying because i guarantee you the north koreans had help from the chinese you know or they're kind of like ideological cousins yeah well, oh, hey, blo- uh, remember the blog? Oh, yeah, that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we just can't get off of North Korea. It's like it's 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 definitely in our wheelhouse. So we have I think we're seen as industry experts on the topic. So I think we really well, it's should. topical. And I, I think yeah. we ought to deal with those things. Um, my favorite post this week was, uh, could this be the best survival firearm caliber in a collapse? Uh, and that's because I happen to really love this particular rifle. Uh, in any disaster, violence is going to occur, you know, any kind of collapse scenario. You have to have a plan for protecting yourself when things fall apart. And possibly one of the best survival firearm calibers in a collapse is the 22. Now, I know the 22 is really hard to come by for a lot of us right now, but I actually did, I bought some gift sets of 22 long rifles that come with like solvents and stuff that you don't want in a little wooden box because I, at Christmas time, I want to give the greatest gift a man can give another man, which is 22 long rifles. And uh, the, the 22 is really an ideal caliber for a survival firearm. Well, yes and no. It's not known as a man stopper, but more people are killed by the 22 than are killed by any other caliber. Um, the, the 22 is a cartridge on which you can standardize that is easy to store in vast quantities. Uh, it also offers great noise discipline uh, because it's quieter than other rounds. It's one of the reasons that, you know, silenced pistols are often 22s. You load them with subsonic ammo. Uh, it's actually very quiet once you get a suppressor on there. Um, because it's light and easier to transport, uh, you can move around with a lot more of it and store a lot more of it. Um, it is, well, <laughs> at one time, it was less expensive than other types of ammo. It really comes down to how badly you're getting gouged. You know, if you actually find somebody, there's there's this huge aftermarket for people selling 22 uh, online, like on uh, GunBroker and, and even in your your local uh, online ads, and uh, the the prices sometimes get crazy. Um, but that only emphasizes the bartering aspect of 22. You know, having 22 shells is like having little silver coins. It's a great trade item. Uh, and people do debate that, by the way. They debate using ammunition as a trade item because there's a school of thought that says you shouldn't be bartering with something and be fired at you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I, I traded him bullets for food, then he shot me and took my food. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, if you don't own a 22 survival rifle, it's a really good idea to consider it. And we featured in the blog post the excellent Ruger Takedown 1022. The 1022 is a fantastic rifle. It's nice to see that Ruger's actually installing the extended magazine releases on them from the factory now, because it used to be the very first step after you bought a Ruger 1022 was to buy a metal, not plastic, extended magazine release and put it in so that you could replace that stupid flush magazine release. Um, it's, a, it's a really good, accurate rifle. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to shoot. Um, it just has... There's an undefinable quality to it. Want to hold it and shoot it. It's uh, 22s for recreational purposes are so much fun, uh, and 
so many of us have gotten away from that because 22 has been so hard to get. But just, you know, if you remember back in the days when you could go to Walmart and buy a box of 500, nobody thought that was weird, and just sit on your, uh, you know, sit on a, a chair at the range or something and plink away at, at cans or any household objects that you have to be breaking with bullets that day. I, I once, um, I had a, a 1022 that was all night lighted in, and I used to shoot the aluminum stand for a, a freestanding fan. Uh, because that little aluminum pole made a great small target, and you could just line up the holes in that aluminum tube, and it was so much fun to shoot it. Uh, so yeah, the the Ruger 1022, the takedown 1022, and on all the the variations thereof are a great choice. Yeah, I think they're more expensive right now. And I bought mine; I got it for 150 dollars down at Cabela's, the the takedown. And now I've seen them like online; they're like 350 dollars. Well, yeah, everything's expensive now. The prices of all firearms have skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can remember a time when you could buy an SKS for, you know, yeah. 130 bucks because they were surplus trash rifles and nobody really cared. And then, you know, we, we, we entered into the age of Barack Obama and guns went insane. And, uh, now you pay, you know, $300 for an SKS. Well, tis the season right now to get some really good deals. I just got a Bushmaster AR-15 with a with a package. It's got a red dot scope on it, and and you know some stuff like that for about five hundred dollars. So five hundred bucks. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's what I mean. Like if you go like it's sort of like Black Friday type stuff, and it's and usually if you go to like a, a Cabela or something like that, they'll get like one shipment in. Like they'll prepare for it, and it's you can get some really good deals that way. But you know, I mean, the rest of the year. You know, forget it. Or if you're, you know, number fifty-one on the list of fifty that that's waiting for that for that item. Last year yeah. couldn't get it, couldn't get the uh, the deal. This year it came in and managed to just be in the right place at the right time, and got to take advantage of that stuff. Yeah, to some degree, the market's gotten a little more normal. It's not good. It's still very much crazy, and especially with yeah. the target twenty-two. But you can get nine millimeter and forty-five and. 7.62 and 5.56 now, which you couldn't get during the height of the buying panic. Yep. So. Yeah. Okay. On Tuesday, we released uh, this week's podcast, which was uh, a real, it was with a new instructor, a new instructor, a new expert that we um, added in. I was really happy because it was a really great interview with Pat Henry, and uh, it was on neighborhood defense planning. And I thought this was really timely. Actually, uh, this is an area that a lot of people don't think about because you think about if there's a survive in place type scenario, social chaos sort of thing, we all have our own individual plan to hunker down and, and defend our homes and things like that. But when you think about like a mob of people outside your home armed with Molotov cocktails, it, it, the chances of you surviving a standoff with a mob is probably not all that great. Or if it's law enforcement uh, in some sort of a martial law confiscation, detention sort of a thing. Again, there's we always say in survival, you don't want to go it alone. You don't want to go the Rambo route and that it's best to band together with like-minded people. Well, when you look at uh, defending an area or defending your home, the further out you can extend that defense perimeter, the better off you are. You can, put, you can have more in place to be able to um, hold off an enemy, to, to delay an enemy. And if you band together with other people, there's you can do so much more. You have a, you have a larger defense force there, one that is potentially even capable of holding off 
a smaller, you know, militarized police force if it were a detention sort of thing. However, what often happens is that if you have your area secure, you can work with law enforcement. So it actually helps you a different way. I'm not saying like hold off the military and, you know, fight back against the police and shoot. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the best, the best method is to actually work with it because you don't want to be facing tanks and, and Bradley vehicles and, and drone strikes and things like that in your own neighborhood. But if you are, you think about it, and especially in terms of if there's chaos going on in a city, the police don't want to take on a, a large force or they've got their hands full. So if you say, don't worry, we have this perimeter secure, that can actually be a benefit to uh, law enforcement and kind of shield you from any sort of targeting there as well. But then you also have the threats that are out there that you want to be able to to guard against. And so this whole podcast was was really, there's some great tips on there and how to band your community together. Look at your your neighborhood tactically. Where are your choke points? Where are your strongholds? How do you set up a perimeter defense? How do you uh, select and train and and um, arm and equip a defense force for your neighborhood? And I thought this was timely because in Ferguson, the Oath Keepers, who are a group of patriotic citizens who have banded together kind of just for that that reason, like, you know, wherever there is a need, they come in to help help protect citizens that, that need it. And so in Ferguson, when the riots were going on, and you know, I'm talking about the, the Ferguson, Missouri protests and, and the riots that happened after the, um, the where they didn't indict Darren Wilson over the shooting of Michael Brown, uh, you know, buildings were getting burned. Shops were getting looted. As we often see, there are always opportunists. They're going to take take advantage of times where there's a lack of accountability and a lack of a, a police presence that's going to be able to protect these businesses. And so where these these wolves come out, they will take advantage of it. And so they were burning and looting shops. So the Oath Keepers took to the rooftops with, you, know, you see them with their, their AR-15s, scopes, night vision, dressed in camo. Basically, they become a, their own military force on top of the rooftops. And while it wasn't the same type of neighborhood community type thing, it was, you know, they did have some loose, loose affiliation where they, they could secure at least a few buildings or a block or something like that. So, uh, we see that there is power in numbers, especially when you're armed and, and these shops did not get looted. They did not get burned. And so, uh, this is kind of the how to podcast of how you can do that and how you can think outside of just your own home and see how this actually does help you secure your home even better. Uh, what was the next uh, blog post that we had? Well, you know, this one, uh, I found it particularly interesting because my brother is an avid hunter. Uh, the post is called Survival Hunting Secrets, One Shot, One Kill Deer Hunting. Um, and if your family's survival ever came down to your abilities to bring home game, Knowing where to shoot an animal is just as important as knowing how to shoot it and having the means to shoot it. Uh, you know, a deer, it's about the size of a person and it's, it's not easy to kill them, especially to kill them in a way that gets them to fall down before they've gone quite a ways and you lose them. I, I know a lot of people who are deer hunters, uh, and many of them will tell you stories about this one time I shot a deer and then it walked away bleeding and I never found it again. 
most hunters are very distraught about that possibility. Um, the post talks about, you know, the different uh, factors in considering where to shoot a deer and what the one-shot kill zone hunting tactics for that deer are. You know, what if the animal's facing you at an angle? What if he's facing you away from you because you're not going to shoot the deer in the butt? Um, you know, will you take the shot of wounded deer that you'll never see again after it takes off? That's not only not helpful to you from a survival standpoint, but it's also immoral, you know, to, to go out into the woods and torture the wildlife and not actually kill it and bring it down. Um, so knowing uh, how to hunt and not, not for trophies, not to mount an animal on the wall, but to feed your family is a game changer for you in a survival situation. Uh, my brother, uh, it skipped me. My father was a deer hunter, although he was not really good at it. He liked to go out into the woods with a gun, basically, and just wander around. My brother has killed so many deer. He got a special uh, uh, nuisance permit this year, and so he was killing deer before the regular season. Uh, he bow hunts, and he hunts with a shotgun. He's got a scope mounted on his shotgun, and he's just an assassin when it comes to the wildlife. And uh, A couple years back, he made a Bambi. He's like, oh, yeah, I was looking at his mom and her, her fawn, and the baby was too small, so I let that go, and I killed the mom. And I'm like, you made a Bambi? He's like, yeah, and her mom was delicious. It just <laughs> cold as ice. Didn't care. Cold. So he, and then there was the year he shot a deer in the eye with an arrow. He was, he was uh, bow hunting from his tree stand, and the deer looked up at the last minute. So he didn't mean to, but he shot it right through the eye socket. And instead of, normally you shoot them with the, the, uh, the arrow when you're bow hunting, and you have to wait for them to die. It takes a little while, even if you get that one shot, one kill, because it takes them a little while to realize, oh, oh, fuck, I'm dead. And uh, he shot it in the eye socket, and it just fell over. That's <laughs> like, you know, that's, like later, it's, that's bragging rights for, like, decades, I would say. Yes, and unfortunately, the skull came apart, so there was no way to save it because the arrow was wedged right in it. What do you talk about? That's but, like perfect taxidermy. You leave the arrow in. You stick the whole deer head up on your wall with the, well, with the arrow. The, the, the bone of the skull, it, it came apart while they were trying to go through the process of cleaning it and stuff. So Yeah, you leave it all apart. It looks like a zombie deer head up on your wall with an arrow stuck <laughs> through it. It's like Daryl Dixon's, you know, taxidermy. You just go to Daryl Dixon's taxidermy. Well, when, when my father was big into bow hunting, he accidentally managed to shoot an arrow into the back of another arrow. So he took that those two arrows stuck together forever and, and mounted it on the wall. Cause you know, you just take a couple of hooks and, you know, a, a, a little rubber band around it, hung it on the wall. So he was very proud of that, that William Tell moment. So, yeah, but your family, well, needs, I, your family needs to learn to stop using the word accident. <laughs> you know, well, he, your so, brother, your brother doesn't say, you know, he looked up at the last minute. He should just say, yeah, I had a good shot and I stuck it right through his, right through his eye socket. The way I see it, like, I'm, I'm not into hunting the way my father and my brother are. And, you know, if, if a deer beat up my mom, yeah, I would I would go out to the woods looking for that deer specifically. I'd be like, hey, have you seen this guy? You know, but but I just, the, the, the deers, if I wanted to kill my dinner, the cows are right there. I can just shoot one and eat it. They're not hiding. The deer hide. You know, I guess I just don't have the patience for it. Cows are a lot easier to shoot, I think. I don't know. I mean, you know, I've seen pigs take like several rounds. Oh, well, in terms of the physical shooting of them, my my brother lives on a farm and there was an incident where they needed to kill a cow that was mortally wounded 
in some way. There was some kind of accident or something. And uh, this was the incident that prompted my brother to buy a bigger rifle because yeah. what he had was not sufficient to the process of humanely and quickly killing this giant cow. So. Yeah. Well, this uh, this blog post was only one type of a shot. I mean, because a lot of people, especially if you're looking at taking up hunting for survival purposes, you know, knowing where to shoot a, a deer and or other big game um, is critical because it doesn't just fall down like, you know, in the movies. And in fact, we uh, we have another email that we put out. This was, by the way, this was um, in support of a of a course. It was actually a, a guest blog post, but I don't have the instructor. The instructor is not really in our network, but there is a um, a survival hunting program out there that specifically looks at hunting from the standpoint of survival, uh, all the all the things that kind of go with that. And there's other other tips in there about hunting different types of fowl or and fishing uh, for survival purposes where you don't have all those same resources that you would from your tackle box, things like that. So there's some really great, great tips in there. If you want to check out that program, the link is on the blog post, um, as well as how to get a one-shot, one-kill from different angles on the uh, on the deer. So if they're facing away, if they're facing at a at an angle, things like that. So that link will take you over to the program. You can check it out. Highly recommend it. It's a really good, really good course. The last blog post that we had was how to fight with a knife, the stance that could get you killed. And this was a guest blog post from Scott Bolin, who has just released a knife fighting DVD. And he always puts up video demos on his site. So there's some other tips that are on his site there. Again, the link is in the blog post. You can check it out. And what he's done with this one is, with this blog post, was show that the the way that most people typically stand with, kind of at the ready with a with a knife and he has a couple of different photos up there to show you and the way that people typically stand with like their hand facing forward kind of in a their non knife hand kind of facing palm out where you're holding you know somebody off or you're like in a defensive position almost like you know in some martial arts Um, he has that and then he has an ice pick type position with his knife hand where knuckles are forward and the point of the knife is facing down. So you're holding it in a, in a point down position. And he says that this is the, this is the stance that when you look at this and he, and he shows himself facing you in this stance that you open up a lot of targets for somebody else with a knife. If you are in an actual like real knife fight. So with your hand facing forward, they can, they can slice your wrist and cause massive bleeding with your knuckles facing forward. If they cut your knife hand, it can, it can, uh, take the knife out of your hand it it basically opens up those targets in both of your hands and your wrist and that this is the worst uh thing i you know there's different there's different styles of knife fighting um and and he is definitely along the camp of kind of like the defang the snake so even in the stance and, and this is why it's important because a lot of people do look at it that way especially in a knife fight if it's not like a total prison yard shiving you know, assassination. Most people in a knife fight, when you're looking at life or death, unless you're dealing with somebody who is a hardened criminal, does not mind killing you. It becomes a lot of like, um, just bullshit, basically, like trying to tag somebody or, um, you know, it's not like you really want to sink the knife deep into their skull sort of a thing. So uh, that's where this defang in the snake comes in because people will slash away at what you have out there. So if you, 
the way I liken this is if you look at just hand-to-hand combat, there are those types of systems where you kind of circle each other looking for an entry and you get in there and, you know, you're trying to kind of box from the outside or land a good punch. And then there's the close quarters combat type where you just get inside their space and just devour their face, you know, devour their head, use all of your interior things. So, so there are two different schools of knife fighting just like that. Uh, Scott has kind of the, the, okay, you start from the outside or you look at what your, your opportunities are. If they reach out, and this is in his video, if they, if they go to slice you, defang the snake, like cut the arm that's attacking you sort of a thing. Um, we have our own knife fighting course, which is another version of, of knife fighting, which is more of the close quarters combat style. Let's get inside and just devour. And so from this standpoint, what, what Scott's talking about is you have those people that do fight like this. They have a knife. They're looking for their entry. And the closest target is what they're going to slash at, which would be your hands. In this situation, in that normal stance, you could get your wrist slit very easily uh, or the knife taken out by slicing your knuckles. And so he gives an alternative position, which makes a lot of sense, which is kind of like the with the non the non knife hand, kind of the, you know, come here and get it sort of approach where your your palm is facing away from them, almost like you're gonna be saying, you know, you know, come here and come here and get it. And that takes away like that that wrist uh that wrist shot for them. Likewise he goes with a blade forward rather than an ice pick grip where What's facing out to them isn't your knuckles, but actually the point of the blade, and that's that's your entry point from there. And from there, you can you can slash, and the the furthest furthest point out away from you is the blade of the knife. And so he gives those as two different uh, demonstrations of a good and bad stance. So uh, so check out those photos, read his article, check out the DVD. There's a link there on the site, and um, you know, and go and go see what you think of the other the other tips that are out there. And that brings us to the what do you know. And this is the portion of our Friday Reload podcast where Buck and I go out, stroll through the Internet, and find some different things that we didn't know about or that are new tips that we think our readers need to know about or news that affects you and me and what we got out of it. So, uh, Buck, what did you come up with this week for the what do you know? Well, this was something I was not aware of because kind of fell off my radar after uh, September 11th changed everything. There is a push to ban round-tipped steak knives in airports. Specifically, some idiot reporter somewhere went to a, a restaurant in an airport after you pass through security to the you know, places where passengers go and eat. He acquired uh, a metal round-tipped steak knife or more than one from the restaurant and then, while he didn't I don't believe he actually took these on the planes, but the point he was making was I could just as easily take these on the plane as anything else because I'm at the point now where they're not going to search me again. And this prompted calls for, uh, you know, in newspaper editorials for the banning of these steak knives from airports. So now it's not enough that they have to strip you naked and wrap you in saran wrap before they can put you on a plane. Now we have to do the same thing to everyone at the airport because God knows one guy with a round tip steak knife can easily hijack a plane, uh, which is completely false. Because, you know, after September 11th, everyone said, oh, okay, so complying is no longer a guarantee that everyone will be okay. There was a time when airplanes got hijacked. If you just did what the hijackers said, more often than not, you know, 99 times out of 100, everybody lived through the experience. 
today, because we now know that the model has changed, the paradigm has shifted, if you'll forgive the buzzword, now if somebody hijacks a plane, everyone's first thought is, it's now a flying weapon, let's blow it out of the sky because those people are dead anyway. And so as a result, I think the danger represented by knives on airplanes is much, much less than it might once have been. The TSA uh, actually was considering allowing small knives on airplanes because searching for those little tiny knives, confiscating them, dealing with the problem is actually a very tedious process. It takes up a lot of the TSA's resources. And if they were focusing more on finding explosives and things that can bring down the plane and worrying less about, you know, your little tiny Swiss Army knife that no one's going to use to take over a plane, they, they could be sort of uh, distributing their resources more usefully. Well, there was a tremendous backlash, and, you know, there was a bunch of, like, uh, flight attendant unions and things like that. People freaked out that they were thinking of making this change. So TSA reversed itself again and said, oh, okay, okay, we're not going to change that. Please stop yelling at us. And, and we are still in the midst of this ridiculous hysteria over anything with a sharp edge. And that hysteria has taken itself to the next politically correct level by trying to get things banned. You would have to work at stabbing someone to death with one of these things because, again, the tip is rounded. Now, that's not to say they're not dangerous. Even a screwdriver is dangerous. But, you know, we just have to stop believing that it's possible to pad the world in Nerf and everyone who ever gets on a plane can get on wearing this, you know, bubble boy safety suit where nothing bad will touch them. It, it just drives me crazy, the hysteria that we're investing in these things. And well, so uh, that was news to me, that this is a thing that people are trying to ban. Yeah, it is surprising. Actually, it's a because um, I thought things were loosening up a little bit. I thought you could have, like, small blades now. It's been a little while since I've flown, but I thought you could have small blades um, on the plane. Now, I thought they relaxed things. They, no, they talked about relaxing things, and then yeah. they changed their mind because of the backlash. Yeah. Well, well, my uh, what do you know this week is about it kind of goes back to our common theme that if the government is preparing for collapse, you probably should be, too. And so recent reports have come out and, and we often find out about the things that the government is doing to prepare for disasters and things by the bids that they put out because they're not a production company, right? Like they're not a manufacturing industry by themselves. So they always put out these requests for proposals and requests for bids for different things that they need. And then it's really hard for them to, to backtrack. Like when they put out for a bazillion, you know, uh, survival, uh, survival food, you know, freeze dried packs and things like that. And the reasoning was that just in case of a massive earthquake along our, our fault lines, we want to be able to have all of this freeze dried food to be able to distribute to people. And then it was like, what? <laughs> we're going to die from an earthquake? And, you know, who knows what they were actually going to do with all the, all the meals. But, you know, that's how we found out, like, wait a minute. I guess if they're taking it seriously, we should also, or at least for the people who are kind of clueless, um, it really helped expose that, you know, they are arming themselves with, you know, look at the, the massive uh, purchase that they did for ammunition that came out. It's all of these requisitions that that give us little little signal flags here and there of the government is really trying to prepare for a triggered event. Like we're we're get, they're getting the clue that 
people aren't just going to like just roll over during times of crisis. They're going to need support, but then also the government is planning for there's going to be chaos as well. And the latest one that's come up was the Treasury Department's request for uh, bids for survival kits. Now, the Treasury Department is the is the government agency that's responsible for overseeing America's banks. So again, it's one of those agencies that you normally wouldn't think would be preparing for anything. Like, what the hell does the Treasury Department need this for? But currently, they're trying to at least cover the major comptrollers for the Treasury Department by putting out a request for bid. It's a, it's a bid for up to $200,000 for survival kits that include things like emergency masks, water purification, uh, solar blankets, latex gloves, uh, you know, ponchos, things like that. It's kind of the innocuous, you know, cheap crap that you normally would find inside of, you know, a lot of the, you know, buy your bug out bag already pre-done for you. Um, but it definitely does go to show that, again, the if the federal government is trying to protect its own people from a disaster, then, you know, why aren't more citizens actually doing that as well? They need to get a clue. And so, to me, this was just another example of, look, they're preparing. Get a clue. Make sure that you're preparing as well and something better than what the government is trying to come up with here with a few latex gloves, a mask, and some purification tablets for water. So anyway, just thought that was interesting. Another little another little flag that popped up there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all right everybody, this brings us to the end of this week's Modern Combat and Survival Friday Reload podcast, where uh we hope you tune in every week and and uh join us. Please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and please go in there and give us a five star rating and tell us what you think of the podcast and um Help us get the buzz out there. Share it with your friends, family, coworkers who don't think that you're a tinfoil hat wearing wacko and help us get the word out. And until the next Unless North Korea says you can't. <laughs> <laughs> until the next Friday Reload Podcast, this is Jeff Anderson. And this is Buck Green. Saying train hard. Stay safe. And prepare now. Thanks everyone. Merry Christmas. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash modern combat and survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.